This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and an associate director of education for the Center for Individualized Medicine in Rochester. Every person is composed of a series of genes that determine everything from the color of our hair and eyes to how our bodies respond to and metabolize medications and our susceptibility to cancer and other diseases. Over the next several weeks, we're going to devote a mini-series of Mayo Clinic Talks to the incredible field of genes and your health. We'll discuss concepts in genetics that are essential to providing the best care of your patients. Topics will include the microbiome, cancer genetics, artificial intelligence, pharmacogenomics, direct-to-consumer testing, the ethical principles of genetic testing, and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize care of patients in your own practice. Today, we're joined by Drs. Matthew Binnaker and Drs. Andrew Badley. Dr. Andrew Badley is currently a professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Disease, as well as professor and enterprise chair of the Department of Molecular Medicine. His research focuses on the investigation of the regulation of cell death and self-survival during infectious diseases, notably HIV and SARS-CoV-2, and how understanding these processes can lead to novel therapeutic strategies to reduce morbidity and mortality. Dr. Badley has also been appointed as chair of the Mayo Clinic Task Force on SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 research, where he oversees all research activities, including clinical trials related to the virus and disease. Dr. Matt Binnaker is a director of clinical virology and a professor of laboratory medicine and pathology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Binnaker's research and clinical interests include the development of rapid molecular diagnostics for respiratory infections, as well as viral infections in transplant population. Specifically, Dr. Binnaker's team developed one of the first laboratory developed real-time PCR methods for the diagnosis of COVID-19. Welcome Drs. Binnaker and Dr. Badley. The topic of our mini-series today is, how does viral genetics influence transmission, diagnosis, and severity of COVID-19? Andrew and Matt, I'm sure we could devote an entire series of mini-series to COVID-19. Now, our topic today is really about viral genetics. And so I am going to be fascinated, I'm sure, and go home with a lot of information today about what you can tell us about viral genetics and what's going on. I mean, we know about COVID-19. All we're hearing about now is Delta, Delta, Delta. Matt? Andrew, who wants to go first to start us off here and can really enlighten myself and people listening from outside about what's happening? I'm happy to start. So first of all, thanks, Denise, for inviting us along. I'd say very broadly speaking, when you think about any infectious disease, you always have to think about the bug-drug-host triad. And, and that is that the various variabilities in the organism itself, so viral genetic diversity, variations in the host, so host genetic diversity, and then when there are therapeutic approaches that come along, variabilities in the host and in the virus, 
that altered the ability of that drug to do its job. And in the setting of SARS-CoV-2, same things apply. There are changes in the virus which impact infectivity, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. There are changes in the virus which impact disease manifestations. Some mutations in the virus don't make you less sick. Some mutations in the virus make you more sick. In the host, there are some human characteristics which make you more prone to severe disease and death from SARS-CoV-2 versus others. And then as it comes to some of the drugs we use to treat SARS-CoV-2, notably remdesivir, which is the direct acting antiviral, the virus can become resistant to that uh, drug. But if it does so, it has other impacts in, in the virus itself. So I think it's really to, important to think about that bug drug host triad whenever you're considering anything to do with infectious disease. That's a really great overview. I would just add on that SARS-CoV-2 is what we call an RNA virus. So it's got a genome that's made of ribonucleic acid. In contrast to other viruses that have a genome that's made out of DNA, the RNA viruses are more prone to undergoing mutations over time. Uh, influenza is a, a good example of an RNA virus, and we have to get an annual influenza vaccination because that virus changes frequently. So we expected SARS-CoV-2 to undergo mutations when we first discovered this virus and began to characterize it. So it's not surprising that new variants have arisen. I think the concerning issue is that the pace of emergence of variants, I think, is picking up as more people are becoming infected and that there are now therapeutics which are being used against the virus. And so we're seeing viruses like the Delta variant, uh, which originated in India and is now prevalent in many parts of the world that's picked up mutations that make it uh, much more transmissible compared to viruses that we saw uh, during the early stages of the pandemic. And we can talk about how those variants emerged and, and why they were selected. Well, Matt, you have been really sort of essential in being able to detect SARS-CoV-2. So as these variants arise, how does your lab keep up? I mean, is it one test fits all? Can you detect Delta easily with the current methodologies? Or have you had to change how you test for this? Are we missing something? Is there a, a hidden COVID-2 out there that we're missing yet? And we have just yet not to find, find? Fortunately, when this virus was first discovered, again, test manufacturers and laboratories knew that it was an RNA virus. And so we knew that it would change. And because of that, most of the molecular tests that we have used for detection of SARS-CoV-2 have looked for not just one part of a gene, they've looked for multiple parts of a gene or multiple different genes within the viral genome. And basically that builds in backup or redundancy into the test so that if there's a change or mutation under one area that the test is looking for, there's kind of that backup part of the test that can pick up variants as they arise. Uh, we saw that with the emergence of the alpha variant, which is the B117 variant that came out of the United Kingdom. One of the major tests that was used in the United States included 
a part of that test that looked for a region of the genome that had undergone a mutation. And there was what we called S-gene dropouts in that test. But fortunately, that test also had two or three other components that were still positive. That's been a way that the laboratories and the test manufacturers can try to keep ahead of the emerging variants is by building in redundancy into the testing. So I don't, don't have a concern that we're missing variants, but we're gonna have to continue to keep on this and evaluating new strains as they emerge and constantly looking at our tests to ensure that they're gonna, going to detect them. And just add, if I could, on the topic of viral mutation being expected, it's probably even more than expected. We know that the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase that, that is responsible for replicating SARS-CoV-2 makes a mistake roughly one in a thousand base pairs. And you know each viral particle is 28,000 base pairs. So mathematically, that's eight mistakes per virus. Now add, multiply that by the number of viruses in the human and the number of humans who've been infected. You have a tremendous number of viruses out there. So mutations do occur. But there's constraints on which virus mutants we end up seeing. The majority of the mutants that occur are harmful to the virus, which means that the virus doesn't replicate. A lesser number of mutants have no effect on the virus, so it persists for a while. But it's only a very, very small number of mutants which offer survival advantage for the virus, so that those are the ones that start to become dominant over time. If I can sort of summarize what Matt said, is really that when you're testing for the virus, you're not just testing for one part of the virus. You're testing for a bunch of pieces. So even though the virus mutates, chances are we're going to detect it or a variant of it or a different form of it because of the way you test for it, right? Yeah, I think that's an accurate summarization. Usually the tests include two or three gene targets. In other words, looking for two or three parts of that viral genome. So if there is a mutation under one part and that misses it, there's some backup redundancy built in. Great. So Andrew, getting to what you said, I think that's really important for people to know is that the virus is going to change itself just because it, the machine isn't perfect. It's going to make mistakes. And a lot of times that gene or that gene change is not going to be favorable. But some of these changes, like at least my understanding is what's happened with the Delta change, it's made itself a much more aggressive kind of virus. So they talk about transmissibility. Can you explain why is the Delta variant so much different than the SARS-CoV-2 that we saw previously? What makes it more transmissible? Yeah, so great question, Denise. And, and just so that we're using terms that are used in the field. So the ability of a virus to replicate is not equal between viruses. There's about six different parts of the virus life cycle from attaching to the ACE receptor, to entering the cell, to reverse, to transcribing its RNA, et cetera, et cetera. And the better each of those steps happen, the better the replication is. And, and the cumulative effect of that is called viral replicative fitness. And what matters to a virus and what determines whether or not it'll survive and become dominant is its replicative fitness. Now, in the case of the Delta variant, one part of that replication life cycle is enhanced. 
and that is the affinity of that viral spike protein to bind to the ACE receptor. That affinity is higher, so it binds tighter and more of them bind. And that means that more viruses enter more cells and the infection overall there is more robust. But it is probable that there are substrains of the Delta variant that had mutations in, and I'm making this up, the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. And those mutations were harmful, so that variant goes away. But the variant that maintains its replication fitness, those are the ones that persist. So I know that I personally feel, and this is not a Mayo Clinic policy per se, (laughs) I believe that everybody should get vaccinated. I think that's important. And you hear a lot of myths out there about, well, if everybody would have got vaccinated, that would have prevented Delta from developing. Can you help our audience understand, will vaccination help with mutations? Because I think the concern is, gosh, if we don't do something, Delta will become gamma, will become epsilon, will become you know, mu, and, and on and on we go, and Phi Beta Kappa into 2030. So you're absolutely right, Denise. Put it simply, the more viral replication there is, the more chances for an error, the more chances for a mutant that has an advantage in terms of replicative fitness. And the first few reports of mutants in an era when it wasn't as, as dense a global pandemic, the first couple of reports occurred in two different scenarios. Scenario number one was when there was a hotspot of infection and a lot of cases, we found that the virus started to mutate and we we had new strains emerging. There's also a couple of case reports of immunocompromised hosts who got sick with SARS-CoV-2. Because of their immunocompromised status, some people will continue to replicate virus for a long period of time. The report I'm thinking about was a CLL patient with a bone marrow transplant who had ongoing viral replication for 100 plus days. And somebody took that opportunity to go back and sequence the virus from that one person on early in his course, middle of his course, and at the end of his course. And within that one host, viral evolution occurred. So anything you can do to stop virus replication, either within a host or between hosts, will reduce the likelihood of mutation and fewer episodes of mutation, fewer opportunities to develop a more fit virus. Yeah, we know that the vaccinations don't completely prevent infection, but we know that they significantly reduce the chance of being infected. We did a large study here, and the data that we generated showed that vaccination likely reduces the chance of infection by 75 to 80% as measured by testing individuals and seeing whether their tests become positive, either in a cohort with that had not been vaccinated or a cohort that had been vaccinated. So to Dr. Badley's point, you reduce the incidence of infection, you reduce the chance the virus can enter cells, replicate, make mistakes, result in variants. So what do we know about the viral genes and severity. There's been a lot of stuff out there like, well, you need to have the right blood type or, or you need to be on an ACE inhibitor or you need to be on an ACE receptor blocker and you won't get sick. But, you know, we know that people who are otherwise healthy have died from COVID-2. And so what do we know about viral genetics 
and the relationship of the genetics of the virus and severity of illness? Great question, Denise. And to answer it, I'm going to answer a different question as well. So in terms of viral factors which impact severity, there are about 10 genes, uh, gene products that are produced in SARS-CoV-2 genome. About three or four of them are immunosuppressive gene products, which means they impair the normal host immune response, which is why, by the way, immunity that you get from infection is less good than immunity you get from vaccination. But that's a side point. One of those genes is called open reading frame eight, not a very imaginative name. The job of open reading frame eight is to block antigen present, presentation by antigen presenting cells and to block a class of cytokines called interferons. So when you get an infection with SARS-CoV-2, open reading frame eight is produced and you impair these things. There's an absolutely wonderful report of a mutant strain of SARS-CoV-2 that is missing open reading frame eight. And you can think about it, if you're missing open reading frame eight, you're now missing an immunosuppressive factor. What is it likely to look like? Well, what it turns out to look like is less severe disease and a heightened immune response to it. And so there's a study that was published in I think Lancet, maybe six or so months ago, looking at a population of people who got the same virus and was missing open reading frame eight, and they all did wonderfully. A tiny fraction of those people went into hospital and most people did well. Now on the flip side, you talk about otherwise healthy people. I can remember a marathoner who had a very severe course of disease and had a unfavorable outcome. Logically, something is different about that infection compared to your average infection where you predict to do well. Turns out that so far we have not identified any viral factors that are associated with worsened disease, although I think we will, but we found host factors which are associated with worsened disease. And so there's a nature paper that looks at a whole cohort of patients who have low risk factors, horrible outcomes, and they did whole genome sequencing in those patients. And it turns out that those patients all have loss of function mutations in pathways that are related to type 1 interferon signaling. Now, what does type 1 interferon signaling have to do with viral infections? That is the first line of defense that all of our cells have against a virus infection. So the viruses are uh, recognized by what's called pattern recognition receptors, and that induces a type 1 interferon response. And that type 1 interferon response limits viral replication in those cells. If you're missing that, viral replication is higher, you get sicker, and you die. I'll point out that host determinants of disease severity from viruses has been a area of study for years, um, notably in HIV. And one of the first identified host determinants of disease severity in HIV was identified in a cohort of African commercial sex workers. So these commercial sex workers had lots of clients and there was lots of HIV going around, but these commercial sex workers never, ever, ever got infected with HIV. And statistically, their chances were huge. So they did genome association studies, and it turned out that these patients were missing one of the chemokine receptors, which is necessary for HIV entry. And that understanding 
eventually led to a whole new class of drugs to treat HIV. Going back to the SARS-CoV-2 case, another gene product which is associated with more severe disease is a uh, gene called tyrosine kinase 2. Turns out tyrosine kinase 2 has an inhibitor. That inhibitor is called baricitinib. Baricitinib has been used to treat SARS-CoV-2 infected patients, and lo and behold, it works. And so there is an emergency use authorization for baricitinib to treat SARS-CoV-2 infected patients to reduce the severity of their illness. So Matt, you do the diagnostic end of things. Can you tell the difference between some of these viruses that lack some of these pieces that maybe make them more or less virulent or they lack maybe some of the coding proteins? Yeah, the, the short answer is usually not. The lab tests that are used um, are just going to say whether an individual is infected with SARS-CoV-2 or not. They're not going to give us the granular information of this individual is infected with Delta versus Alpha. That being said, we do have tools in the lab that we can use to get to that information. And that's being performed more and more. It's using sequencing-based testing. And we have those capabilities here at Mayo Clinic. We've worked closely with our state health labs and more labs across the country and around the world are standing up those capabilities and tracking what strains are most prevalent in communities is just absolutely essential to know what we're dealing with. And, and I'd add that when faced with a patient that you're treating for, your treatment is not altered based upon what viral variant you have. So as Matt said, most of the viral variant sequencing work is done on a population-based level to track epidemiologic trends, but it does not impact individual patient therapy. So Matt, it seems like methods and sources for testing are popping up all over. You know, mail your sample in, swab your nose, and now we have people saying, I'm going to take a cheek swab and we're going to test you for COVID. So what can you tell our audience about the different means of testing and the different kinds of tests? Because I think there's a lot of confusion out there about, you know, I'm going to get tested for COVID, but so-and-so got a cheek one and so-and-so got a Q-tip in their nose and so-and-so had to get the swab all the way down the back of their throat. What are we doing now? What do we do at Mayo? And, and are we okay doing all these different tests? Can we believe the results? I would say that the testing and the types of tests and the types of samples has been a moving target. It's been something that we've been very focused on. So I think the gold standard is still the nasopharyngeal swab. So the deep swab that you described, uh, we're still recommending that, although we are also allowing here at Mayo for patients to have what we call a mid-turbinate nasal swab, which goes up about halfway into the nasal passage. And we've compared those two sample types and shown that they're pretty comparable in terms of detection of SARS-CoV-2. But the virus isn't as prevalent in the anterior part of the nose. And so some tests just do an anterior nares swab. That's probably less reliable in terms of, especially when you get a negative result. Many labs have also validated a saliva-based test, and the virus is present in saliva, but maybe not to as high of levels as it is in the nasopharynx. So these are important nuances, 
And I think as we start to see continued use of testing, especially in the asymptomatic population, we really have to be careful about negative results in asymptomatic individuals when we're using a suboptimal sample type, like an anterior nair swab, and what we would consider a suboptimal test, maybe a test that you would go to Walgreens or CVS and buy and perform that at home. So we still have to do a lot of studies uh, with these newer at home or without a prescription test to verify their performance. It, I think it's too early to really recommend those. Do you find or do you think there's a difference between the variants in terms of where you find them? I mean, you mentioned that if you're in the anterior nasal turbinates, which for those who don't know is sort of the middle of the nose in your nostril, is there a difference where we find higher concentration of variants? My short answer, and I'm sure Dr. Badley can expand on this, is there could be a difference between the upper respiratory versus the lower respiratory tract. We've learned that with the 2009 H1 influenza strain, and that some patients, we couldn't detect that virus for very long in the upper airway, but it seemed to have more of a predominance in the lower respiratory tract. So we've had patients that were negative in a NP swab or a nasal swab, but were positive in a BAL fluid. And I think that could happen with different variants of COVID where the variant may have more of a predominance in different parts of the airway tract. I'd agree with the statement that we see cases where that is true. I don't know that that has been linked to a specific yes. defined variant. Where do you think things are going with regards to testing with regards to next steps in sort of battling the pandemic. What are your thoughts? And, and obviously, we're not going to hold your feet to the fire. And this is a podcast of information, not that you uh, will be able to tell each of us what we can expect. But what are your thoughts about what's going to happen over the next three to six months? Over the next three to six months, we're going to continue to see cases. Because we have high levels of replication in various areas, we will define new variants. Whether or not those variants have a major change in virulence or infectivity, I don't know. We need to continue to push vaccination. I think that there will be more public health measures being implemented in the near term as an as a attempt to try to reduce transmission. And I believe that we're going to see a couple of new products approved by EUA as new therapies. One of those, I think, will be a drug called molnupiravir, which is a Merck oral antiviral, which early studies are showing to be quite effective. And I think that in particular could be a game changer. Having an oral antiviral will allow us to transition the treatment of COVID to predominantly an outpatient setting without the need for an IV infusion. I think that is going to make a big impact. But long-term, I've said publicly before, I'll say publicly again, we'll be seeing cases of SARS-CoV-2 for another 10 years or more. Yeah, I would agree. It's going to be endemic, probably already is considered an endemic virus. I'm actually concerned about this fall and winter. Coronaviruses in general 
in the northern hemisphere tend to cause more cases of disease in the fall and winter months. And there's a, a variety of factors that contribute to seasonality of viral infections. We won't get into that today. But my concern is that typical coronavirus season is fall and winter. We'll see increases in COVID because of that. And we'll likely see geographic differences, regional differences in severity or case counts because of differences in vaccination rates. Areas with high vaccination rates, you know, 60% and above, probably will see less people in the hospital, less people dying. Those areas of the country and around the world with lower vaccination rates, I'm concerned about what will happen this fall and winter because you'll likely layer on another confounding factor, which is influenza. We didn't have an influenza season last year because the world stayed home and it, the world for the most part was wearing masks and, and being very, very good about mitigation measures. Many people understandably so are done with that. They're back to normal interacting with people. And so we're starting to see a resurgence of other respiratory viruses, RSV, influenza. So I'm a bit concerned about what happens when you have that normal mix of respiratory viruses along with COVID. Uh, we haven't experienced that. And this fall and winter, that could happen. It's been fascinating. I've seen a few reports looking at the drop in hospitalizations and incidents of severe asthma attacks. Again, attributed to the fact that people are masking. And even in my primary care practice, people who would often have severe asthma exacerbations and illness through the fall last year were well. I mean, they weren't calling in for prednisone. And I would share your concerns. I mean, I look at this and I'm a little, I guess, a little bit of a, a medical history geek and read all about 1912. And this is 1912 all over again. It's a hundred year pandemic. We're, it, I don't see... COVID going away. It's going to look a little different and it's going to be around and we'll be getting, uh, you know, at least my read of the tea leaves is the joint vaccination of uh, influenza COVID one shot for both somewhere in the future. Uh, do you think that's going to happen? Annual fall COVID flu vaccines? Broadly speaking, there's two reasons to get a booster shot. Reason number one to get a booster shot is that your immunity wanes and you need to crank it up a bit. For SARS-CoV-2, we don't know when that is. We do know, we have pretty good data that the quantitative and qualitative aspects of the immune response to the virus remain pretty robust for about a year. We don't know longer than that because there's not enough people running around who've had it for more than a year. In those people, the memory B cell responses appear to be robust. So it is my belief, no data that the robustness of the response should last for several years. The second reason you can have a booster is if you develop viral variants for which the antibodies generated against the current vaccines are no longer effective. That has not yet occurred. So I think it is possible that will require a booster on a two to three to five year interval to boost immunity, that's number one. I don't think we're going to need a booster to enhance coverage of viral variants yet. That may occur. And then the third population where we might, might need a booster is in the immunocompromised host population. We're well aware that, for example, solid organ transplant recipients have a quantitatively inferior response to the current vaccines 
compared to immunocompetent hosts. There are a variety of trials starting, and there's likely to be a trial starting here at Mayo, looking at a booster vaccination approach for those patients. And the results of that trial will inform whether or not that group needs a booster. That discusses whether or not you need a booster for SARS-CoV-2. And if my read of the tea leaves is right, then I don't think we'll be having an annual booster for SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think, you know, at some point in the next two, three years, there, there probably will be an option for people to get a, a booster to either elicit that or strengthen the immune response or to cover for new variants. Uh, but I think currently the emphasis needs to be put on getting as many people vaccinated with the current vaccines that we have around the globe, because this is a worldwide disease, exactly what we've seen with Delta. We can't just have the developed nations receive this vaccine and not expect to have problems a few months down the road if, if the developing countries don't get the access to the vaccine. So um, that's where the emphasis should be right now. Well, we're getting close to the end and I, I'd invite both of you if you have any closing comments here before we finish up our podcast. Andrew, any closing comments you would like to leave our audience with regarding the viral genetics in our COVID pandemic? Uh, Only one, and that is that we as healthcare practitioners, I think we have a responsibility to lead by example for our communities. And so the request is to lead by example in terms of sharing science-based information, leading by example, getting your vaccine, masking, and limiting interaction with others when there's the possibility of transmission. Matt? Yeah, I think that's well said. I would just add briefly that this virus will continue to change over time. The vaccination is our best tool against preventing that emergence to accelerate. That's the most important thing right now is to get as many people worldwide vaccinated as possible. This is not an issue that we can grapple alone uh, on. It takes everyone. So again, this is a team approach, as Dr. Badley mentioned, and we've got to lead by example. Well, thank you. We've been talking today about how does viral genetics influence transmission, diagnosis, and severity of COVID-19 with Drs. Matt Binnaker and Dr. Andrew Badley. Thank you for your time, Drs. Binnaker and Badley. If you have enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. See, your genes really do matter. Music